0: The following recording is part of a six-week series entitled Rooted, a study through the book of Colossians at Holy Cross Church. Well, we continue in our, our Rooted series tonight, and this week it's called um, Rooted, uh, the Truth of the Gospel. We are going to learn the importance of both nurturing our faith faith as well as protecting it and doing all that we can to protect our faith, and the things that we believe in. Paul is concerned. While back, we, I gave you a little backdrop of what's uh, going on in this letter and why he writes this to this church. The Colossian people, they have this small church. It's, it's a new church of new believers. There's a, a bunch of different kinds of people from different backgrounds, different age groups, uh, different stories. And he's concerned because there have been some people in their midst. Uh, and these aren't people far off. Uh, strangers. These are people that they deal with on a regular basis that are teaching them lies. And Paul hears about these things, and he writes this letter, and he writes this chapter two um, to warn them, to ground them, to root them in what is true, and to give them, uh, to help them be on alert for what is false. And so we're going to do that tonight. Um, I have a good friend who, it seems like every week he is He's in a new project. Um, Money is no option for this friend. And so every week they just have new toys in their house, uh, new projects around their house. Uh, They even dug a well one time. They said, you know what? We don't like city water anymore. And so he dug a well in his house. And and now that's what they shower with and drink and and everything like that. And anything they want to do is just fantastic. Well, they decided they want to eat their own eggs from their own chickens. And so he said, "I'm I'm going to make a chicken coop. And they went all out, right? Spared no expense beautiful chicken coop I went and visited. Well he was telling this story about everything. You know, he got the chicken wire, he got the post and he got the feed, got the, special, the fe- special boxes for the hens to go in to lay the eggs. He was telling a story one night in the middle of the night, he just hears all this commotion outside, um, a lot of racket in the coop. Something's going on. But he thinks, "You know what? I'll check it out in the morning." And so he goes out there in the morning to check out what was going on in the chicken coop, and he says it was a massacre. There were just, like, chicken bodies everywhere. Sorry, any little ones in here? Sorry, I don't mean to scare anybody, but chicken parts, chicken pieces, chicken bodies everywhere, just a massacre. And there's this one hen that's alive, and it's just, like, pacing back and forth, like, just, like, back and forth. And this chicken, this, this hen didn't lay another egg uh, since, and this was, like, a year ago. I mean, it's just terrified constantly and will not lay an egg. My friend, what he failed to do was he, he measured out everything and measured out the wire and everything he needed, spared no expense, but apparently you're supposed to dig like a, you know, a foot or two under the ground and put the chicken wire underneath so that nothing comes in there. Well, there was this you know, bobcat that had been scoping out the, the chicken house, or the hen house, for a long time, finally waited for the perfect time, got in there, and, and just made a da- bad day for, for everybody involved. Well... Let's carry our analogy, if we can possibly do that, to our passage for tonight. There are two things important in this passage. One, there is a right way. There is a right way to believe. The Bible uses the word teaching or doctrine. And I don't want you to be scared by that word doctrine. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've tried to, to keep a distance from, from that word or what it means. But there's nothing scary about that word doctrine. It simply is, what does the Bible teach? What does it teach about doctrine? any given subject. And Paul is writing to his, his friends and saying, I want you to believe in certain things that are true and sound and right. And the second thing, it's good for us to know what dangers are, there are out there to protect us from errors, to protect us from dangers. And they might be far off. They might be things that we see on TV and and, and false teachings of all kinds. They may be in your neighborhood. They may be, right in, they may be sitting right next to you. That's what I'm saying. These, they can come with, from within. They can come from without. False teachings takes many, many forms. And they're not always obvious. Paul will go on in this passage to talk about people will use very cunning words, very cunning sentences. They will trick you into believing something that's not right. So it's important that we find out that what are we to be grounded in, what are we to be rooted in, and then what do we need to do pr- to protect that and to guard against all kinds of false teachings that might come into our life from a variety of different areas. So let's go to chapter 2. And I've actually printed the entire chapter in your bulletin, and we've got it up on the screen behind me. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the entire chapter of Colossians 2. It's a, you think about this as a letter that's been written to friends. And typically what would be done is someone would get up and they would read the entire letter out loud from start to finish. And this is a four-chapter letter for us. It's not that long. And here we're just in one chapter. And so it's not unreasonable that we, we would get this complete thought in what Paul is trying to talk about as, in, in regards to false teachers. So grab some popcorn. I mean, get comfortable. Let's read through. Let's follow along in chapter 2 as I read it here. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with reason by his his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that, are, that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Will you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for this this passage, this scripture that is from you. We ask that we would learn tonight what we are to be rooted in, how to lay a foundation of good and sound teaching, how to guard ourselves from all other kinds of teaching that seek to minimize the truth, that seek to discourage us and take us away from finding our true hope in you. It's hard to even uncover all the false teachings there are we may be believing some of them we may be on the on the hinge of believing some we may be teaching some in our day-to-day life would you make it clear to us would you give us a clarity in our heart on what we are to believe help us to be rooted firmly in you help us not to compromise our beliefs by things that sound really good and things that look really good keep us from that temptation in Jesus' name, amen. We'll see, we're going to answer three questions for tonight as we walk through this passage. One question is, why is it important to know true doctrine? Why is it important to even know what is true? Second, what does it mean, or what, what do some of these false teachings look like? What do some of these false doctrines look like? We're going to expose some of them, uh, not exhaustively, but we'll talk a little bit about that. And, and thirdly, how do we guard our sense ourselves? against these false doctrines. Why does it matter to be grounded in, in, in faith, in, in, in a solid doctrine? Why does it even matter to know clearly what is right, what is wrong, what does the Bible talk about, what does it not talk about? How do we even sort through it? And so we're going to talk about that question first. Why does, why does it even matter? What's at stake, I guess, is the question that I, that I want to, to answer tonight. Um, I understand we, we, have, we have a few different kinds of people here. Uh, we have some people who lead, with, who follow with their heart, right? We we engage with God or life or circumstances very emotionally. Um, you, you're part of the experience. You feel a lot of things. If you were to explain to someone how you're doing, you talk a lot about how you're feeling. Um, and so, and then there's other kinds of people, who who follow with their head. So you might encounter the scriptures or life in general very analytically, very systematically, very matter-of-factly. Very linearly, you, you, you look at things as if you're know, black and white. What do I need to know, and how do I need to act, and let me know how to do it, and, and it's all, it, it's so much in your head. And you love it. You love to study, you love to grow in your head, you love to learn new things. Someone says, how are you doing? You would just describe to them what you did that day. So maybe that's you. And then maybe there's a third kind of person that's maybe a combination of the two, or someone who's just absent of those two. And maybe we have some people here that, you know what, I don't don't think with my head or feel with my heart. I'm just here. Can we go already? What time is this over? I mean, so you're just, you 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 don't think about spiritual things to a deep way or even a superficial way. And you don't engage with things like that. And I understand there may be some people like that as well. But if there is something at stake, if there is something at stake, wouldn't you want to know what it is? And that's why Paul is writing this letter, because he's saying there are certain things that are at stake, if you don't engage in what is right, what is wrong, and how to know how to protect yourself from it. And so here are some things uh, that are at stake. Because as Paul cares about this new church, I care about you, and I care about you deeply. I love you guys so much. I want you to know the truth, and I want you to find your foundation in it. And if somebody, anybody would have come up to you and tell you a lie, I would just be furious, And if any of you were were, were that person, I would be so disappointed, so grieved, because there is so much at stake. And so here are some things that might be at stake. In verse 8, Paul uses the phrase, taken captive. He says taken captive, and literally, that word is like robbed. It's, you're robbed and you're taken as a slave. And by not being rooted in the truth, not knowing what the Bible says, not knowing deeply about its implications, it's possible to be convinced in such a way that we become people's slaves, that we become robbed, that the things that we do love and do care about are taken from us. Have you ever been robbed before? Raise your hand if you've ever been ro- If you ever had anything taken from you that didn't belong to that person, how awesome does that feel? <laughs> how awesome does that feel? Wow, you know what? I didn't need that. No, how violating does that feel? Is there, how, how horrible does that feel? How vulnerable do you feel when you know that someone was in your house, your car? Someone saw what you had and they took it, and now you don't have it anymore. I came home one time. Well, I, I've, I came home many times, but one time in particular, I came home, and our sliding glass door was in a million pieces. It's one of those tempered glass, and so if it breaks, it doesn't come off in shards. It comes off literally in probably a million pieces, and it's all over the floor. And it was just this... I, I went from, from, you know, from, from really angry, or I went from confused to angry, you know, skipped sad, and straight to just, like, really feeling really creeped out. That someone was in my house, looking through my things, touching my, touching my things, looking at pictures... And, and it just, it's just a horrible feeling. Paul is saying that if we are not grounded in scripture, we, we become vulnerable to all different kinds of teaching. And it could literally, it could rob us of what is valuable to us. In verse, in verse 4, he uses the word delude, literally to intentionally cheat someone out of what they, what they want or what they desire or what belongs to them. I imagine all of us here desire something, right? We desire some something. Um, let's talk about just in our, in our relationship with God for, for a moment. You desire something. You desire to grow. You desire to become stronger as a Christian. You desire to be mature in your faith. These things can be taken from you by false teaching. You can be deluded. You can be robbed. You can be confused. You can be led astray. So there's a lot at stake in that respect. Another thing that's at stake. Paul says that we're in danger of becoming hollow thinkers. Literally, what is at stake is your knowledge of the wisdom of God. You become empty. James uses this word, the same word he uses it and translates it, translates it as stupid. Like you become like stupid people. Like the way that you think becomes so, it becomes so dumb and watered down. And that's what false teaching can do to us. It can pull us away from things that are profound and meaningful, and it can make us just empty in our heads. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, he's instructing this young man, and he says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. And I've been reading through this book with, with Kyle, actually. It's called Think, and it's been very encouraging. It's by John Piper. I totally recommend it. And this is what John Piper says about that. He says, thinking is essential to the path of understanding. If we desire to know about God and know more about God and know about his wisdom, his character, his nature, what he desires for us, we have to think deeply. And what false teaching does, or, or teaching that is wrong and not, and not consistent with God's word and the scriptures, it, it, it makes us empty thinkers. And in turn, it, it causes us to not understand the wisdom of God. Let's look at another one. In verse 23, Paul says that we can waste our time. If we false teaching can just waste our time. Um, have you ever spent a, an entire day on something just to realize that you did it all wrong? I mean, that's like me every time I have to like put together something from IKEA. You know, I put it together and then I look on the ground and there's like a table leg. I was like, "Honey, we didn't get a three-legged table." And then you got and, and then because of the way it's set up and engineered, you, you can't just like. Fix it. You have to take everything apart and put it back together. Look at what Christ is building in our life and what we're desiring in our life as we grow in our relationship and fellowship with God and with others. False teaching can actually, it can make us waste our time. We can build into so much, we can put a lot of energy and thought and thinking into something, and it can be very ineffective. Isn't that discouraging? I mean, to think that, are you telling me that my that my time, that, that this has become fruitless in knowing God. And there's a, there's a part to this, another side of the coin, that that God can restore and redeem even those times that, we, that were not effective, that what people mean for harm, God means for good. But there is an element of this that Paul is warning us, that where God can make good of all these times, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, for, for sure, we shouldn't pursue after them. And second, we should not be careless. We should be very diligent to seeking out the truth. He says that many teachings will give the appearance that things are really good and they're really, they sound really good and favorable. And that's, the, those are the hardest teachings. They sound like they really make sense. And Paul says, they're going to sound like they make sense, but they're actually going to be really bad. So he encourages his readers, including us, that there's a lot at stake. So what do some of these false teachings look like? We said that we were going to uncover a little bit of it. And so let's look at what Paul talks about in this passage. I I worked for about a year, a little over a year, at a bank in town. And one of the trainings that we had was in in counterfeit bills to to look at and be able to pick out of a lineup uh, what bill was counterfeit. And this was a pretty extensive training. We got a lot of time looking at um, real bills and how they... How they got us to understand what a counterfeit bill looked like, Uh, and for one, I've never, I've still never seen a counterfeit bill in my life. And I went through hours of training of counterfeit currency. The way that they taught us how to find a counterfeit bill was to study the genuine currency, to study very closely the real deal. And so we would know the feel of it, the texture of it. It's actually made of cotton. It's actually dollar bills are actually made with recycled jeans. So if you look really closely, there's there's little blue and red ribbon, little blue flakes and red pieces of yarn. It feels a little bit like cotton. It shrinks when you put it in the wash. You know that, right? Just like your jeans. There's a feel to it. There's a texture to it. There's a watermark in there. There's a ton of different security features. There's a size a size that is that is very precise. And so we study the real deal. So that we can know what the fakes looked like, and that 's the approach that paul is taking here. He seeks in this letter he 's talking he 's going to talk about false teachers, but he doesn't he, he briefly touches on some general things, but he doesn 't talk a lot about specific things. he talks more specifically about the authentic truth of the gospel, and he talks about that in, in verse eleven through fourteen and so let 's look at that again let 's look at eleven through fourteen because here he lays out very clearly, the genuine article, the authentic truth of the gospel. What does it mean? He says that your forgiveness and your sins and union with Christ in meaningful fellowship is based on the work of God. He makes that very clear. There is no room for confusion about that. He says not by your own works or not by your character, not by, not by anything that you've done good, but by the work of Christ on the cross and his character. He says, he uses the language, you were dead in your sin. He says, you were dead in sin, but you were given a new life. And he takes this effort to clarify how that new life came about. And he says, your faith, this faith that gave you new life, even that was a gift. And that was a work of God. And he gave that to you. He forgave forgave your sins. He says, you had a record of sin. It's like God was literally writing down in a book a record of all of our sin, and it said what Christ did was he took that sin and he nailed it to the cross, and he canceled the debt that you owed God. He goes at great length to say it wasn't anything that you did, it wasn't by your work, even the faith that, you've been, that you have to believe has been given to you by God. It's a gift. So all this transformation that these people in the church are seeing The transformation of their forgiveness of sins, their the gift of faith, the removal of shame and guilt, the new life and and union and fellowship with God, all of those things is a work of God. And then Paul says, that's the genuine article. And he kind of wraps it up in a really nice package and he says, Anything that you hear contrary to that is a lie. We hear stuff like we hear lies all day long, contrary to that teaching. And we'll get to that in a little bit and talking about that they're a lie and they're a danger to the heart of the gospel, and so tonight we want to be rooted in the truth of the gospel so that we can know God that we because there's a lot at stake. think of those chickens oh. now let's look at this let's look at some of these false teachings okay let's look at what he does talk about somewhat generally and we'll talk a little bit about that one the first one that I looked at and I saw, was man-made teachings. Okay? Um, he says that these man-made teachings, these human-made traditions, can't deliver on anything they promise. They seem nice, but they are not useful. They're like an appendix, I guess, in, in a human body. You know, they, they look like they should be doing something, but they're just really not doing anything. Oh, I don't want to cut it out because it's part of my body. Well, you, you, you don't need it. And actually, it's probably just going to cause you a lot of pain and discomfort later on down the road. What about traditions in the church? Can you think of any traditions? I'm not asking for suggestions or for you to blurt it out, but I want you to think for a second. Are there traditions in the church that that have somehow grown to be useless, that you don't know why they are done and why we do them or why we don't do them or churches that you've seen do them? I have uh, have kind of a ritual, and and it's a preference. It comes down to preference. And so what people do is they take preferences and they take things that seem meaningful and they make it just as important as God's word and say they, these things need to be done. If we don't do them, then you're hurting your sanctification, you're displeasing God, and so you really need to be obedient to those things. There are certain, we, we, do, we have preferences all the time, right? You and I have preferences. I have a preference in my house. One is that, and this is really frustrates Janae, I can't eat lunch before I eat breakfast, and you're thinking, "Well, that's silly. Of course you can't." No, I'm saying, if I have a day off and I sleep until eleven thirty and I wake up, I can't eat lunch until I eat breakfast. I need to have a breakfast-type food first thing in the morning, even if that morning is the afternoon. I have to have something to drink that has fruit in it first thing in the morning. It has to be I, coffee will even work. I mean, give me a bagel, give me a donut, give me a piece of cake. That's breakfast. It just needs to be a breakfast-type food before lunch. We even went out this weekend. And after getting the baby in the car, breakfast turned into lunch. And by the time we got to some place, it was literally 11.40. And they didn't serve breakfast anymore. And I said, we have to go someplace else. And we did. And that was the first and last argument I won. It was awesome. No. We went somewhere and we got breakfast. We went to Jerry Bob's. It was awesome. <laughs> Only place served breakfast. That is a preference. It's a ritual of mine. If I were to say that that is the way that things need to be done, that's right, God set it up that way, there's a, there's a reason why we eat breakfast in the morning, it's the best, it's the most important meal of the day, but if I were to say, these, I would recommend that you do this and this is the way it needs to be done and God will be pleased, that would be a lie. Things happen like that in church. There are things that seem to be good, traditions that happen, and then what happens is somebody says, This is what God desires and what needs to be done. What that can do is so much damage to the gospel, because it's the false gospel. Paul says if if anybody is teaching anything that is essential other than these things, it's a lie and don't have anything to do with it. We need to be willing to hold with an open hand and to give up any preference that is not rooted in Christ, that is not explicitly or implicitly communicated in the Scriptures. We need to be able to have an open hand to those things. You may be thinking about things that we do at Holy Cross. I want you to know that we, a team of people, and part of our, our launch team, a part of our initial group, we got together and prayerfully considered what elements would be beneficial to us as we worship God. There's a lot that we do that we have decided on as a church that are important, but are, but are not essential. We do things that don't have to be done, but we choose to do them because we like them. There are some things that God teaches that, are, that should be done, should be practiced, that are essential. And those things we want to hold tight. We want to encourage others to participate in. And everything else we have with an open hand. How things look, how things feel, how things are done, well, it has a lot to do with preference. When we prayed about, God, what is, going to, what is going to bring you glory? What is going to bless you as we worship you? How do you desire to be worshipped? And so we went to his word and we found out, and we, we searched the scriptures and said, how does God desire to be worshipped? And let's include those things in our element, in, in, in our worship together. We want to sing Him praises. We want to pray. We want to talk about the Bible. We want to have fellowship with one another. We want to confess our sins. Those are important things. How we do those, boy, there's a lot of freedom. There's a lot of flexibility. They're not essential. Let's look at another one that Paul talks about. He talks about the elemental spirits of the world. And this, I don't know for certain exactly what he's talking about here, specifically to the people. It may be, it may be talking about the spiritual world, um, Spirits and demons and angels and things like that. And I find that we could probably fall into one or two categories, even, even among us. We fall into this category. We, we overemphasize the influence of the spiritual world in our life. Right? We're driving to work, and we get a flat tire, and we think that, that, that Satan is persecuting us. Why is Satan being so hard to me? And, and I, you live 100 feet from a construction site. You know, you ran over a nail. That's going to happen. That doesn't have anything to do, that may not have anything to do with Satan and, and what he wants to do with your life. And so there may be that tendency where we, we overemphasize the spiritual world. And that could lead to all kinds of errors. Maybe another person that's the other kind, where you, you don't emphasize it enough, where you boil it down to the wrong things, where it's, it's all chemical, it's all hormonal, it's all biological. Now, I don't want to minimize the reality of those things in, in your life, and in your body, and as you experience things. But if we don't emphasize the temptations that Satan wants to bring in our life, to destruct us of our joy, to take us away from truth, to minimize our faith, to tear us down any way that he can, he will try anything. And so we shouldn't de-emphasize the spiritual world. And Paul touches on this possibly because some were getting overly, overly sensitive overly emphasizing the spiritual world, and everything was a spiritual reality. Everything that happened that was unfavorable, Satan was among them, and they had to do all these rituals to kind of cleanse themselves and cleanse their meeting place. And Paul is saying, that's a false teaching. And so we want to search scripture and figure out what is the proportionate reality of God's word, and how do we align our hearts and minds to it? Not overemphasizing it and not underemphasizing it. It's right for us to think biblically about the spiritual world. These are real things. Paul talks about them a lot. There are demons, and they hate us. They hate you. There are angels, and they seek to minister to you. Those are real things. Another thing that he talks about is something that I call Christ plus anything. Christ plus anything. And Paul talks about this. He says, there's going to be a lot of different teachings that come along. If anything, has to, if anything is Christ plus anything, then it's a lie. See, the problem was with these false teachings, people weren't coming in and saying, Christ wasn't real. What they were saying was, Christ is real, but then they were taking something a little small and they were adding it to it. And saying, yes, the gospel and what Jesus said, those are real things. But if that's real, but look at what also is real. And let me put that on there. And so this whole package now is real. That's a lie. Here's a real conversation I had. I met with a friend, a great friend of mine growing up, continued to be friends for a while, um, and then just kind of lost contact, not for any real reason, but um, maybe 2,000 miles apart, has something to do with that. And we were talking and, and, he's, and he, he loves the Lord. I believe that he, he does love the Lord. But he talked about, you know, when I, if praying to Jesus is really good, who loves their children more than their mother? And you hear that, and you're like, logical? That's smart. Mothers love their kids. And I imagine that Mary loves Jesus so much. And so instead of praying to Jesus, I'm going to pray to Mary. And she's going to tell her son the things that I need, because she's a wonderful, nurturing mom. Like, my mom loves me and wouldn't do anything to harm me. Mary wouldn't do anything to harm Jesus. And because she, she loves Jesus, she's going to bring this message to him. And so he would not pray to Jesus anymore. And he just prayed to Mary. Mary. Now it seems like a seems like a plausible argument. Seems like I mean it may seem a little weird to you, but it seems like a good idea. But this is what the Bible teaches is completely contrary to that. What it's doing is it's adding to Christ's mediatory position that He is the mediator to God between us and God. Christ is the mediator and no one else, nothing else. And so this is taking what's good about Christ and it's adding a little something to it. Paul says, stay away from that, it's a lie. Another man I met, he, he said that Christ came to him and told him to write a new Bible. This is a man I see often. Not one of you. And he says, I, God, he came to me to write a new Bible. And, and, and not, not to contradict what's already been written, but to, to, to give another testimony. Something better, something, something a little bit more drawn out and thought out for the contemporary world. And this is going to be used by the church one day. Any testimony other than Christ is a lie, it's false teaching. Even if it has some things in there that are good, that, mean, that are true things. These are meant to take us away from the truth of the gospel. Here's another real conversation. You may be thinking, Man, who do you hang out with? Well, these are my friends. <laughs> this lady came to me, when this is when Facebook started to become really big. And she was on this quest to get as many people as she could to, to get on Facebook. Why? Because she read in the Bible that when Jesus returns, everyone will see him. And so she thought, what better way than to do it on Facebook? Because everybody's on Facebook now. And Jesus might come back to earth and, and, and put, an, put, an, put a status update that he's here. How are we going to know if we're not on Facebook? With a straight face, she would telling me these things. Now you're thinking, okay, now we're getting kind of ridiculous. But these are what people are thinking. What would you say to that person in love and in grace? Would you say, I'm just not going to hang out with you? But what, What would you tell them? How could you begin to love them and speak to the truth? Unless you know the truth yourself. Unless you know what God's word says. The prosperity gospel says this, that if we follow the teachings of Christ, we can expect good health, good wealth, happy life, good fortune. Seems like a great idea. Doesn't it? But it's just not true. And it distracts us from the truth of the gospel, from the gospel of grace in Christ. The scriptures teach nothing of, of, of any such teaching like the prosperity gospel. Can God bless people with financial gain? Absolutely. Because of their faith? Absolutely. But teaching this gospel is a distraction from the real gospel of grace. that says, nothing but Christ. And in fact, the, te- the, Bible, the teaching of the Bible kind of teaches contrary to that, that if you love Christ and have a strong faith, things are going to go really crummy for you at times. Things are going to be taken away from you. Things are going to hurt. Things are going to be painful. You're going to have disappointment. And so the, the Jesus said to his best friends, said, if you love me, the world's going to hate you. The prosperity gospel says, if you love Jesus, then things will just keep getting better and better and better for you. Except for all the martyrs and all the people in Bosnia and all the people in Ethiopia and all the people that aren't in America. Right? So it just does not, does not work. Any kind of asceticism. He uses this word asceticism. This is like false humility. This is like going on and on about a lot of things that sound really good but don't really mean anything. Paul talks about this. They make no logical sense. They talk a lot of but they don't really say anything useful, don't follow these people. These people that talk a lot and just talk, talk, talk about everything, but they don't really say anything meaningful, don't follow these people. You can be friends with them, you can love them, do not follow them. These people, what Paul is talking about is that with enough good living, with enough good acting, with enough good intention, you can attain a spiritual unity with God and favor with God and purity in your own life if you just keep going and try hard enough, you will get there. Paul says, don't follow those kind of people. Because that's not true. It's not because of what you've done. We're coming up to a season here after Christmas and before Easter called Lent. Now, if you participate in Lent, go right ahead. If it's something that you really want to be a part of because it's encouraging to you and devotional to you and encourage encourages your, your heart, go ahead and do that if you believe that it gains you favor and love from God, that's not the gospel. It does not make God love you more because you didn't drink caffeine for 40 days. It doesn't. It is absolutely of no value to your salvation. But if it's something that you enjoy doing because it's part of your devotional life and it's a way for you to focus on Christ and his sacrifice for you, Go right ahead. There's a lot of things that we can do, right? That are like that. But know why you do it and the right reason. That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about asceticism. When he's saying Christ plus anything else. These things seem like a good thing, but they are of zero value to your salvation and relationship with God. Zero value if you think that they will make God love you more. The truth of the gospel is an art to understand. The Bible lays it out very clear. He came. Jesus came. He died. He lived a perfect life. He, he did everything that we were supposed to do but couldn't do because of our sin. He rose again. He transforms us through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. His power is in us, and those things are a gift. He forgives our sins, and those are not complicated things. The Bible is clear about those things. We can have clarity about what God desires and who He is and what He's done for us. Here's how, Paul, here's how Paul does uh, encourage us to guard our faith. And now let's get to that, that part where we talked about. Okay, here's what the false teaching looks like. Here's what it's meant to do. Here's why we should be on guard. And then he does encourage us. Here's how you can be rooted in Christ and be firm in, in the teachings of Christ. And so let's look at that. Let's look at verse 6 again. Kind of jumping back up to the top. Follow along there in verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He uses two great metaphors here, and it's from this passage that we got, well, we really fell in love with our, the title for our series, for Rooted. He uses two metaphors, one of a garden, of a plant, of a tree, and the other of a building. This, when he talks about being rooted, he's talking about rooted in Christ, that we have received something true, and that we should anchor our life in it. We've already been taught the love of God, the death death and his resurrection of Christ for our sins, the transformation of faith in our life by the Holy Spirit, the hope of eternal life in Christ because he rose from the dead, and will come back and, and make us whole, make us mature. Root your whole life in those things. Anchor yourself in those things. Why would you even give an ear to anything that teaches anything contrary to that? And then here he says, we use what we've been given, and then he builds on the second metaphor. He says, built up in Christ, he's talking about a building, he's talking about a structure, he's talking about a castle maybe, he's talking about something that you continue to add to on this firm foundation that is strong. And so this looks like applying this gospel of grace, applying the word of God, the things that are true. First, we know what they say. We are firm in them. We understand them. We seek to know them more. And then we take those things we know and we build a life out of it. We saturate our life in every area of our life with the gospel of grace and with the teachings of Christ. Our single life, we take our single life and we say, God, what does your word say about it? How can I build on my life so that I can glorify you and that you will... You will be glorified in all I do. How can I enjoy you in my single life? We look at our married life. We say, God, how can I apply the gospel of grace to my spouse? When he or she does things that that really tempt me, that make me angry and frustrated, how can I build on what you've established? How can I build on that? Our passage goes on to say that because of receiving Christ by faith, our record of debt, has been canceled. I love that. It's been canceled. Our record of debt has been canceled. So look at your life for a second. A life without the gospel is like a a life of weights and measures. Your life is weighed. Everything that you've done, good and bad, everything is weighted, right? It's measured. So a life without Christ, without the gospel, all that you have is the good outweighing the bad. A life of the gospel takes away the weights and measures. It says that that record, that book, that big record of our sin has been canceled. And now we don't live based on weights and measures and doing good and not, not doing bad. But our life is now based on something different, and that's the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. So Paul says to do this, stand firm. And that's my challenge to you. To stand firm in the gospel of grace that has been preached to you in Christ's word to pursue it diligently, to know what it says? When was the last time, and this isn't, this isn't a, uh, an indictment or a, something to make you feel shame, but when was the last time, I want you to think about this, that you had a, a quiet, restful time with God and His Word to seek Him out, to know Him, to know more about Him, with a motivation of, I want to know who you are. And then you gave time in order to do that. We should do that more and more. We should do that. We can't run out of times to do that. We can't do that enough. When I first met Jesus in in college, after my freshman year at the U of A, I got like a 1.4 GPA that year. I wouldn't recommend that, but there was a lot going on in my life. Don't worry, I graduated with like a (laughs) 2.4. It's awesome. There was a lot going on in my life where I just needed to soak up so much and all I did, I skipped class and I just sat down and I said, I need to get to know who you are. We need to have that kind of hunger. And, and, and believe me, that, that hunger and thirst in my own life is not the same as it used to be. I feel at times that it's deeper, but it's not as, it's not as energetic. It's not as passionate, and I want it to be that way. You may be thinking, you know what, I'm just not a person who really thinks deeply. I'm not a person who just really has a two-hour time in the scriptures. I'm not a person who thinks really deeply about stuff. And I want to say to you, you do not need a college degree to think deeply about Christ. You know what you need? is humility. What you need in order to know Christ in a deep way is not a very smart brain. What you need is humility and a desire to know and a hunger and a thirst that can only be quenched by Christ. Some of you are very good at connecting, uh, of taking your heart and just immersing it with God's word and feeling and being passionate and you might, be, you, might, you might have room to do a lot better with thinking soundly about what God's word says. And I want to encourage you to do that. Some of you might be good at seeking God's word, knowing what it says, and being very deep in it. You're the life of the party. You're very deep in God's word. And you could do a lot better at having an affection for Christ, an affection for his word. And so I think what we can learn is that we need to spend time with one another because we have a lot to learn from one another. God has gifted you in a certain way to think deeply. He's gifted you in a certain way to think emotionally, and we need to be encouraged by one another. There's room for us to be more affectionate and emotional, connecting with God's Word, and there's room for us to be a lot more profound in our thinking. And that's what Paul is wanting to encourage us to tonight. He encourages people to that. And as we do that, as we focus on that, we need to be alert. We need to be aware. Not from weird people. Outside, but people within the church that are teaching things that are false gospel. We need to love them. We need to call them out on it. And we need to preach the true, authentic gospel to them. We need to be collectively and individually good at tending to our chickens. Okay, I'm going back to that sad story. Tending to them, feeding them, feeding our hearts, enjoying that fellowship with God, and very good at protecting those chickens, protecting what God has given us, putting a stronghold around it and saying, this is what I know is true and I'm going to guard it with my life. Let's do that. Let's pray together. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com.